This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, we are talking about the second order effects of the war in Ukraine, as well as how nonprofits and international organizations working with journalism are working on documentation of the war crimes and terrible stories coming out of this crisis. Yeah, George, that's a great introduction. Our first story is about global food security and how the war in Ukraine is threatening to exacerbate food emergencies across the world. So according to reporting from the New York Times, the war in Ukraine is threatening global food security on a large scale. Ukraine and Russia together account for nearly 30% of the global wheat supply and serve as a vital supplier of things like fertilizer, grain, barley, sunflower oil, and other basic food staples that are essential to the global food infrastructure. In addition to food security challenges within Ukraine, that is now a food insecure country, already vulnerable communities across the globe, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, are finding themselves in an increasingly precarious situation. The World Food Program estimates that over half of its wheat comes from Ukraine. And in an interview, the director of the World Food Program said that in emergency situations in Yemen, humanitarian organizations are being forced to prioritize the starving over the hungry, compounded by sky-high global food prices, supply chain issues, the rising price of oil and gasoline, regional conflict, and even natural disasters. Many food insecure countries that are currently facing problems because of the war in Ukraine may be facing large-scale food emergencies as the war continues. And it seems like the downstream effects of this war could have ringing implications for months to come. And I think this is vitally important that we sound the alarm on because it's one of those things that's less visible. It's less flashy than a war, but could have serious, serious humanitarian implications. The report also talks about these other contributing factors and the big one being rainfall, for example, in East Africa where they're saying that just, you know, due to droughts there, that they're just simply not keeping up with the amount of food and the shortage of food in, in and around Kenya actually led to like 1.5 million livestock being, being killed. So, you know, it just, it adds up. But one of the things is looking at a problem before it happens. I think we're starting to see some reporting around that, but it's something that you know, nonprofits, journalism, working on it to say like, hey, you know, this is going to be a huge problem if things aren't planted right now. On top of that, you look at potential impacts on farmers due to inflation, not wanting to overinvest in that huge capital outlay. And it may be more than just, you know, capital markets, which find efficiencies, but actually like humanitarian markets saying that, no, literally, we know it may not be profitable for you to plant, you know, twice as much wheat, but we kind of need it where you can get it. Absolutely. And yesterday, the episode of The Daily from the New York Times was about this very issue. And the lead journalist on that story was from reporting from Brazil, where the Brazilian government has been forced to be extremely proactive because the majority of their fertilizer comes from the region. And advising farmers that they are going to have to start potentially ration, rationing fertilizer. So exactly to your point, the economics of this get really complicated. It's disturbing to read a line such as the prioritization of starving over the hunger. It's a type of global triage that 
it just felt like unimaginable five years ago because we produced technically as, you know, a globe more food, you know, it was more about the distribution, right? The problem of last mile. How do we make sure that this bit of grain makes it to that final person on the ground and it was just resource allocation and now it potentially a scarcity of resource? Yeah, that's a, a good point. And it makes the the downstream effects of that, of of course, are tragic, but focusing more on what's happening in Ukraine itself. Over the weekend, there's been outcry over videos and images showing just absolutely horrific war crimes and violence against civilians in the surrounding areas, the suburbs of, of Kiev. And the story here is that NGOs, nonprofits, governments, international organizations, and even citizen journalists are teaming up and creating a sort of alliance to try to document these war crimes, which will be really important. So the, the story here focuses on Human Rights Watch, which is an international human rights watchdog. They're a nonprofit. They're headquartered out of New York City. They've launched a full-scale investigation into war crimes. There's also large-scale citizen journalism efforts, including those produced by investigative journalism outlet Bellingcat. And these are going to be essential to documenting these crimes and attempting to prosecute them in international bodies like the International Criminal Court. Amnesty International also has a crisis evidence lab. Lots of different nonprofits and NGOs are stepping up to fill the void here because if you're prosecuting crimes, many of which are just almost too horrific to talk about on this podcast, you need evidence. And it's very clear that the nonprofit NGO community and civil society community, not even just internationally, but within Ukraine itself, are stepping up to try to document these crimes to, to bring justice to the, the perpetrators. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird maybe to talk about the laws of war. However, there are laws of war which prohibit willful killing, rape, and other sexual violence, torture, inhumane treatment, capture of combatants, and civilians in custody, pillage, and looting also. You know, frankly, it needs to be recorded. And I think one of the things that we're watching is the most documented and recorded war in known history. And, you know, it's to say that you have a lot, a lot more eyes on this and a lot more technology distributed into the hands of the people who are living this nightmare in a, in a way that is just not been seen before and you know it leads to you know we put a content warning on this it leads to a lot of intense reporting and then live sort of you know alleged which i think is important because there is there is propaganda game also going on right now make no mistake there are narratives that all of the parties involved are trying to push and support with documentations it's extra important that you've got verifying bodies, you know, such as the Amnesty Internationals and Human Rights Watches that can truly verify that like this is, you know, this is not about helping Ukraine in ratchet up sanctions against Russia in the moment, but rather a documentation of of what's actually going on, which which is which is tough. Yeah, I think that's true. And when you dig into this if you read some of these articles, I think you'll find that doing this is actually quite challenging. It's quite challenging to prove that a photo or video was taken where and when it is purported to have been taken. And it looks like this conflict is one of the first conflicts where 
there's apparatuses in place to kind of document that material in a legally sound way. And like, researchers, I mean, obviously you can't just like snap a shot of a photo. Like, what does that actually mean? Do you know how that works? There's, so not to get too nerdy into this. Oh, but go nerdy. I, I, I asked it, I called it. There, from what I remember, there's a protocol, a 2020 protocol. So kind of like guidelines produced by one of the universities out of California, Berkeley, UCLA, something like that. And it outlines a process of due diligence for proving that this event happened somewhere. It's kind of like a roadmap. And actually the journalism uh, outlet here, Bellingcat, is very well regarded within this, this space. And they also have really, really rigid processes and documentation for how you have to verify essentially photos. They, whether it's Google Maps, they're using satellite imagery, video timestamps, there's lots of different things and it goes through lots of different review. Unfortunately, academics think that even with all that, it still may have a hard time standing up in, in front of an international court like the ICC. But it, it's really interesting. And I think this is one of the, the ways that tech is filling a void in a way that it never has before when it comes to potentially producing evidence of war crimes in this way. It's, it's really, as, as tragic as it is, it's really interesting to see how tech is being used in this. In this. I feel that it, it can feel like you're, wait a minute, like how is this helping the, the moment? You know, how can you be documenting something during the crisis versus you know, getting out there and just raising what you can to, to help support refugees and whatnot? What's important is to take the long view and to make sure that there is a established and enforced global policy of what is socially at a global level acceptable. And one of the things that has to be done is what is the true impact of this long-term? Because guess what? This is not the last time some, you know, somebody believes their, their, their destiny is to, is to acquire land once held long ago. If you go back, you know, it, it was all held by the dinosaurs and they should launch an attack. So how do you make it so that the global theater looks at this, punishes it, documents it, and makes sure that that is brought into the calculus of doing this the next time, which is a terrible thing to say, but the work of doing this right now is so important when you look back because it will build into the potential global deterrent for bombing yours civilians. Absolutely. And when you look at the history of this, it really stems from the Nuremberg trials in which a team of lawyers with frankly no jurisdiction had to make claims saying that these crimes were so atrocious that it requires something beyond what any single country's judicial system could offer. To your point, it's so important that we have this. And of course, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. But every chance we get to document these crimes will be one more deterrent against them happening in the future. That's the hope. All right. What do we have on the summary? This going back to Ukraine, but in a very different way. We reported on this a couple of weeks ago that the video game Fortnite would be donating their in-app purchase revenue to Ukraine. We read that story with amusement. Two weeks after they announced that, Fortnite and its developers have given $144 million to relief efforts in Ukraine. That is an amazing sum of money for one 
in video game app purchases. That boggles my mind. But two, that's an incredible amount of money in a humanitarian emergency like this. And I'm really interested to see what video game makers and companies, if if there's a way to make this sustainable, because if you can, if you can turn video game usage into humanitarian support, that seems like you're onto something. But this is truly incredible. I was not expecting. I mean, that's you. Know, we covered it with interest, but this is you know it, it it fails description. Talking about you know, it's clear that this is their bottom line revenue. This is not like percent of proceeds. Like this is the difference between oh, we're sending one percent of all sales, like. This is what happens when you just change the the spigot from, you know, pointing to your bank account to uh, a social cause. And it is, it's incredible and hopefully makes you realize that, you know, these communities are, are very, very powerful when mobilized. And this is just, just the beginning, I think, of how, you know, the online game, like think about it for a second, an online game built around, frankly, people shooting at each other. It's mimicked war actually saying like, no, 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 it should stay in the game. And, and the response is pretty incredible. And what's more in this, in this news article, you know, they announced it on Twitter and frankly, the PR representatives of Fortnite added that the company is just not taking further interviews on the subject. And they just are referring people to the, to the website regarding the relief effort. I mean, take a, take a beat and think about how sadly, how often uh, when a company does a a good deed like this, then it's like, all right, now let's spend twice that amount on the PR and and media push that goes associated with making sure the entire world knows what we just did. And this is uh, the absolute opposite of that. Absolutely. I agree. If this is a model for corporate social responsibility, I'm in. Maybe I can be converted. Yeah, I'll go buy a Fortnite. I'll buy a Fortnite skin, yes. I will too. I was going to add a Fortnite related joke, but I have you played, because do you I play, Have you ever played Fortnite? Here's a question. Have you ever played? Never. So I, I have a, I don't actively play, but I did get into it because I realized how big the ecosystem was and I did play it. I, you know, I get it. It's fun. It's pretty social. You're definitely like getting along with, you know, teammates and talking with people. So it, it's far more, far more of a community I think, that people may realize. And you play with people internationally, you dropped into these battle royales with a bunch of random people and you're placed on a team and then suddenly you're cooperating and you're, you know, running around with somebody who is, you know, may have, is probably of a different background. Than yours. That's really interesting. You bring that up. Video game, video games are very democratic in that way. And I think like harnessed back to my point, harnessed correctly can really lead to cross-cultural understanding and, and potentially humanitarian outcomes. I, I think there's, there's a lot of potential. All, all right, I can lead us into our next story. Uh, this one is titled, In a David versus Goliath battle between NGOs and a pipeline company, Goliath is losing. And this article is about how essentially small nonprofits and NGOs in Virginia and West Virginia are fighting oil pipelines and through various legal challenges versus U.S. Fish and Wildlife and various companies and various pipelines are winning. So there's, there's different pipelines. There's the Mountain Valley Pipeline that it talks about. There's the Equitrans Midstream Pipeline. I didn't pronounce that right. 
those developers have invested $2.5 billion in this project, but an NGO in that case called Wild Virginia, a conservation organization, is putting up quite a fight. This seems like a, a movie or some sort. I think I've seen this movie before, but just really interesting and just going to, to highlight the important role of advocacy and conservation organizations when it comes to protecting our environment. And it goes back and touches on so many other themes that we've talked about, whether it's, you know, indigenous access to land and, and preserving all sorts of different cultural heritage and environmental sustainability, environmental justice and racism elements. It's a good story. We recommend reading it from Forbes, but really interesting. I think the timing of it also, you're going to see, you know, probably it's not the most popular moment with gas prices rising and frankly, Russia using it as its biggest key of leverage to, to, to attack and saying like, wait a minute, you know, have, have, you know, like what the, the immediacy of how much oil and gas production that's probably needed right now to, to stop, to stop Russia is also has to be balanced with the long-term impacts of saying we need it to be to put as many headwinds as possible for the continuation of a, you know, a carpet based energy policy. And it's, it's, it's tough to balance. Like right now, gotta be honest, I'd be much happier if, you know, environmental movement in Germany had allowed for a lot less dependency on oil and gas from, from Russia. These are hard conversations and, you know, I respect the people that have the long view and can maintain the long view. As opposed to saying like in this one moment of crisis, yeah, it would make a lot of sense to get as much oil, frankly, flowing as humanly possible from the stores where they're kept so that avoid this disaster. The problem is always, you know, fighting the battles of the day, ignorant of the war, the larger war of tomorrow, which is truly environmental, the environmental stakes, which are huge and have, of course, social justice elements as well, because we we can be hurting a lot of communities on the way to do I think that's a great synthesis. I will take us into our next story. And this is one of those boring, but potentially important stories. And this comes from the nonprofit times. And it, the title is taxpayer first act expands mandatory e-filing of 990. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a tax expert. So please read this article yourself, but the general gist is that new legislation, under new legislation, the IRS is now required to provide notice to any nonprofit that fails to file a Form 990 return or postcard for two consecutive years. And similarly, there are now new requirements for the electronic submission of Form 990s. Do your own research, do your own homework, just know that these changes are upon us. Yeah, I'll just add from this article, Form 990 easy is used by organizations that have gross receipts of under $200,000 and total assets of under 500,000 at the end of their tax year. So especially if you are a smaller organization, you know, send that around because, you know, potentially they're, they're looking at organizations that haven't uh, potentially filed in, in two years, which could then begin to risk potentially because the IRS, remember tax classification of a 501c3 might risk that. So yeah. That it's one of those fun, you know what it, you know what I think of when I see articles like this is the same thing when I'm dealing with like a really tough random administrative issue 
for, for even whole whale. And it's that like, I, you know, I'm not an accountant. I don't know these things, but there are people running nonprofits that suddenly have to be like, okay, let's dig into what this actually means and figure that out. And, you know, it's the, the dirty truth of, of being, you know, the founder of a small nonprofit or even of a company of certain sizes where you're just in charge of figuring out confusing things on a regular basis that you have no background in. But frankly, if you get wrong, could mean the, could mean severe implications for the organization. Fun stuff. No pressure. No, yeah, no pressure. I'm sure it's fine. No pressure. <laughs> oh man. How about I, how about we finish with a feel good story, George? Yes, please. One. All right. This comes from the Good News Network and it's about a nonprofit that's hit its milestone for protecting more than 1 million acres of rainforest so far this year, all with public donations. In September, the Virginia-based nonprofit made a $500 million commitment to preserving biodiversity. And six months later, the Rainforest Trust and its partners have already protected more than 1 million acres of habitat so far in 2022. The Rainforest Trust organization has safeguarded over 38 million acres of habitat since its inception in 1988. And we really like their model. It seems like they work with indigenous communities and pre-existing organizations, which is really important, protecting indigenous communities in the, the countries they work in, Belize, Ecuador, Guatemala, Bangladesh, Myanmar. Cool stuff. We like protecting the rainforests. Ever increasingly more important, we spent a lot of time talking about global food security, uh, or insecurity, that is, you know, spurred by things like drought, things that global warming and protecting our environment play a role in. So increasingly important, great stuff in this story. Love protecting the rainforests. Yeah, and the stat here from Rainforest Trust is that 99% of the forests protected by them remain standing today, and the nonprofit is well on its way to protecting 125 million more acres by 2025 that you did it nick that made me feel good that's a feel good story i'm glad this has been using the whole whale podcast if you want to keep learning more about these topics and others head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 